Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Trevor, are you a Strava guy? Absolutely, guy. Well, you got me into it. You <laughs> should swear and curse at you for all you've done to me. <laughs> I did. I, I knew that you would be into Strava. Well, you can actually use Strava and your addiction to Strava to your benefit because if you head over to healthiq.com slash velonews, Health IQ, which is a company that provides life insurance for fit folks like us, you know, cyclists, runners, uh, swimmers, vegans, uh, whatever, whatever makes you fit. Uh, You can now use your Strava, upload your Strava to Health IQ and use that to get a discount on life insurance. All you got to do is head to healthiq.com slash velonews. Do they provide for Canadians or will they just laugh at me? <laughs> no Canadians allowed, sorry. Welcome back to another episode of Fast Talk. This is Trevor Connor here with my usual partner in crime, Kaylee Fretz. Hey, Kaylee. How you doing, Trevor? And we have with us our, our regulars on the tech end, Dan Cavallari. Hello, Trevor. Hey, Dan. And Kristen Legan. Hey, Trevor. How are you guys doing? Wonderful. Fantastic. (laughs) So our topic today is, Kaylee, please. The future. Future. The future. (laughs) We are asking the question, what is your bicycle going to look like in five years? Or what are you going to be buying in five years? Mostly because we just want the sound effect. (laughs) Oh, we're off to a great start today. <laughs> so I'm doing the introduction this time because this is probably going to be my only contribution to this. I'm not interested in the future. I'm interested in where we were 20 years ago. <laughs> what do we mean by the future? What, what, what exactly are we talking about today? What's your bike going to look like in five years? And in terms of materials, in terms of build, what are the frame tubing going to be made of? What is it going to look like? Uh, are the bikes of today what we're going to see in five years? My guess is no. I think they're going to be pretty drastically different. Can I you? mean, if we look at bikes from five years ago and look at bikes today, right. they are definitely quite drastically different, uh, more so on the mountain bike side than on the road bike side. But still, we've seen quite a bit of of change, uh, generally improvement, although sometimes improvement when it first shows up doesn't always feel like that. So, yeah, that's that's the goal of today's podcast. We want to answer that question. What are bicycles going to look like in five years? And I think the first place we want to start is Dan's segmentation theory. (laughs) Trademark on that. Dan, explain your segmentation theory. Uh, Those are a string of words that make me sound smarter than I am. The segmentation theory is uh, we we had road bikes, and then we had different categories of road bikes. They segmented. There was all around. There was aero. There was endurance. All these different bikes that you needed in your quiver to be the quote-unquote racer. Now what we're seeing is a lot of those categories are coming back together. Uh, We're starting to see aero elements in all-around bikes. We're starting to see compliance features in aero bikes. All of those those bikes that categorically set themselves apart are now starting to blend by borrowing from one category to another. They're not becoming the same bike, but they're, they're borrowing elements. And that's because manufacturers are realizing that a lot of these things that work in one segment Work in the other one as well. So now you can make these aero tubes that aren't so harsh and are really lightweight. Uh, so we can lend that to the all-around category. So 
my segmentation theory states that we are now seeing elements from all categories come into one, which makes the potential for the quote unquote cliche quiver killer. The quiver killer, the bike, the only bike you need. That's the whole idea, right? right? I'm going to say straight away that I vehemently disagree with Dan's segmentation theory. As he always does. Uh, maybe I'm a cynic. Skeptic, yes, you are. But I, I have seen the industry build these categories as, uh, well, one, because it gives the sort of the perfect bike for different types of rider. That's the argument that they would make is if you want an aero bike, you should get a really, really aero bike. If you want a very comfortable bike, you should get a very comfortable bike. And those should be two different things. The more cynical reason for creating all of these categories is that it allows bike brands to sell more bicycles. And I don't think that that market pressure is going away. And so I do not think that Dan's segmentation theory is correct. Now, I do think that Dan, I do, I think you're right in that we are, we're going to see, as you said, like attributes from one type of bike make their way into other types of bikes. I just don't think that we're ever going to see a, a bike manufacturer come out and say, you don't need to buy our aero bike and our climbing bike and whatever other bike. You just need this one bike. I, I don't think we're going to see them say that because why, why, they, they have very little incentive to do so. Well, they already have said it. Uh, they said it with the proliferation of endurance bikes. This is the one bike you will need. You can race on it. You could ride all day on it. And the the that went out into the market, and people said, "No, I can't because this is not a race bike." <laughs> and so you're seeing uh, what you're seeing now is endurance bikes changing back more toward race geometry. So those are course corrections that, if you look in each category, each category is getting this this course correction uh, sort of treatment. And as those things come together, a perfect example is uh, the Canyon uh, CF Ultimate. Uh, and even the BMC team machine that we just got in, we're seeing that's, those are both all around bikes, but they both have aero tube shapes. They get really thin, uh, seat stays. Those are both elements borrowed from other categories. And we're seeing those come together in a way that allows you to do almost anything with them. And even with the proliferation of disc brakes, now we're seeing wider tires, which allows you to, to get into that endurance category. So quite, I mean, you could honestly make the case that that bike is already here. So your segmentation theory is basically that the bikes themselves are getting basically better, more versatile, mm -hmm. and that negates the need for these different categories. But there's always going to be categories because there's always going to be marketing, and that's going to be <laughs> where we go. So while all of these bikes are going to become more versatile and you can ride them in all these different kinds of conditions, each segment is going to be better suited for a specific thing. So even though an aero bike has compliance features, it's not going to sacrifice those, um, those aero bits for the compliance. Aero bikes are always going to be faster than, uh, an endurance bike, that kind of thing. So maybe they're going to look a lot more similar to each other, but each one is going to, I think the categories are going to stick around and that they're just going to be more focused in certain aspects. Right. And I think there's always room for a specific tool. I mean, we were just at the Colorado Classic this past weekend. And when I spoke with Kiel Reinen, uh, on during stage two, he was riding a disc equipped Imonda because it was a, a climbing stage. Well, disc three was, or excuse me, disc three, uh, stage three was also a climbing stage, but he was on the Madone which does not have disc brakes. And I said, well, why, why not just ride the Amonda? It's also kind of tailor-made for this course. And he said he wanted the, the aero advantage. He wanted the stiffness for in case it came down to a sprint finish. So for those who are at the top echelons of the sport, those categories are always going to exist and they're always going to want that specific tool. And th this always comes back to, to the, the, the differentiation between what the pros are riding and what we are riding. 
if you're talking about the pros, they, they have room for the quiver. They have money for the quiver because they have sponsors. I don't have any sponsors. <laughs> I got a lot of hooks in my garage, but I don't have any sponsors to fill it for me. It also comes down to where you live. You know, like somebody who's living in Chicago maybe wants an aero bike because you're doing a lot of flat crits or you're riding in groups and it's about being fast and flat. For us here in Boulder, you know, we've been really hooked on this whole endurance, or yeah, the endurance bikes that have really big tire clearance because we have these awesome climbs that you can go and uh, hit a bunch of dirt and then descend down them. And, and because their geometry is not quite so upright, they're a good bike for here. So it just kind of depends on where you live. If you're somebody who just loves to climb mountains, mountains every single day and you live in the mountains and go straight up, straight down, you're going to want a different bike for that too. So while the pros have a whole quiver of bikes that they can choose from, most of us are thinking, okay, what is going to be the best bike for me on a regular basis? And all those bikes are getting better. That's, that's the, I think that's the takeaway. Well, I think we've proven Dan wrong. Uh, (laughs) so we're going to move on from this particular topic. Kaylee's theory of cynicism. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we, well, next we have another theory. We have Kristen's theory of integration. This is, this is science-y. <laughs> I think this is our last theory of the day. Uh, although I, I can have an e-bike theory. We can yeah. call it an e-bike theory later. Kristen, your theory of integration. This, this goes back to what bikes are going to look like in five years' time. We've definitely seen this as a trend in the last decade or so. What are we expecting to see five, ten years from now? I think a lot of the bike companies are going to focus more or focus less on the frames themselves and start putting together every piece of the bike as their own proprietary equipment. So handlebar stem, um, you know, a lot of bike companies are making wheels now. And so it's going to be, these bikes are going to become these machines where everything on there is specialized, not, you know, Shimano, not, and maybe drive chains are a different, different thing, but we're not going to see quite that's the next theory we're going to discuss. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about that. (laughs) But you know, like there will be things that are, you can only use this type of handlebar on this bike that kind of thing. So I think we're going to see bike companies come in and try and take more control over the bike rather than just the frame. How do we feel about this? So it I makes am, me angry inside. I remember a couple months ago, I was at a, a friend's shop um, in upstate New York, and, and he's had his shop for a long time. And he was talking about the issues with this specialization of, of the frames and the bikes and, and this, I guess, integration. Um, and at one point, he pulled out from the 90s this manual, I forget the name of the manual, but it's this big guide for mechanics. It, it gives you all the information on anything, like what size bolts you need for, for different types of whatever part. Uh, Leonard Zinn's like, book, maybe? Probably. <laughs> you, you would probably know it. But the, the point that I do want to make is he pulled out the book from the 90s, and it was, I mean, nobody can see, but it was about an inch thick. And then he pulls out the version from now, and, and it, it yeah, you, you could have weighed down pretty large objects. <laughs> with this book it was enormous and he was complaining about the fact that anytime somebody comes in with a a specialized or a trek or a different type of bike it takes different parts you have to order all those specialized components and he was saying i'm a small shop you know this is not a a big um in a major city type bike shop this is just around the corner mom and pop type shop he's like i can't keep all this stuff in stock nor can I actually keep up and all the different things I need to do with these bikes. And it's getting really hard. So that, I mean, that's, that's why I said that it makes me angry inside is because I I do this. I mean, this stuff, it, it, you, okay. Maybe theoretically you end up with a slightly better product, but at what cost at the cost of irritating every single home mechanic on the planet and making everything more expensive and making it really difficult to like sell things and trade stuff and move stuff between bikes. And it's just, it, it, rubs me the wrong way because it's so not consumer friendly it's it's replacing consumer friendliness with 
really very very marginal performance increases. Well, well, I don't think it's that's not a bargain that I want to make. But it but it it brings up Dan's theory of Scrooge Mc, McDuckativity. Uh, <laughs> you got to remember for, what for we're the talking. rest of today. Everything has to be expressed as a theory. <laughs> <laughs> Theories of ivities. Uh, it's just a theory. We don't actually know what we're talking. Yeah, about. no, this is totally made up. What what I I think we need to focus here focus on here is when when we have these big tech advancements, those almost immediately go to the top. So we're talking about the top of the line stuff, which maybe will trickle down later. And so when you're talking about integration, that's going to go to the top. And what what a, a manufacturer wants to sell at the top of the line is an experience. And so if we're integrating things like handlebars and stems and uh, seat posts and things like that, that allows a manufacturer to say to a consumer, I'm not just selling you a bike. I'm selling you the experience. We're going to make this specifically for you. It comes with a fit, a fit session to get it just right and a pro setup and, and blah, blah, blah. So now for your $12,000, instead of just being handed a bike and say, okay, go ahead and adjust your stem however you want it, they're going to do it for you. And I think for those high-end consumers, that makes a lot of sense. For this, the small mom and pop store, who's maybe going to sell one of those bikes a year, I think that's less of a burden because they're really not going to be dealing with it. Those are, those are lower price point bikes where that technology isn't going to reach for a couple of years if it reaches it at all. Because I think those customers, like you said, are the home mechanics who want to be able to tinker. Uh, you know, they are the guys that want to go in and just say, I just want my bike to work. I want to be able to adjust it right here. I don't want to go to California to have a wind tunnel session. But what we're talking about here with these advancements is top of the line. If you're gonna, if you're a bike company who wants to integrate everything and bring everything in house, like I think at some point we're gonna see a proprietary drivetrain, and when that happens, that's gonna go straight to the top of the line, and that's gonna be the sort of thing where you're gonna you're gonna spend a lot of money to get it, and it's gonna be the sort of thing where everything is tailored to you on that bike. Which brings us to our next topic: whose theory is this? Trevor's theory of drivetrains. No, it could be my theory of drivetrains. Kaylee's theory of drivetrains. Do we think we're going to have a specialized branded drivetrain in the next five or ten years? Yes. Kaylee's theories of drivetrains says yes. Yes. Do you guys agree? So now what are we talking about when we say drivetrain? Just to make sure everybody's We're talking cranks, derailleurs, cassette, chain, shifters. shifters. You know, the stuff that you buy from Shimano, SRAM, Campagnolo now – are you going to be buying that from Specialized Giant Trek? Now, just to step back a little bit, a big driver behind a lot of this integration is not making your bike better. It's making your bike cheaper to make for the manufacturer. Uh, the reason why a manufacturer wants to put their own wheels on the bike is because then they also get the profit from those wheels. The reason why they want to put their own handlebar, exactly the same thing. They don't have to then buy a handlebar from a third party, which costs more money. So if we end up with a bike that is entirely from one company... Yes, it is potentially a better bicycle, but the other thing to keep in mind here is that it is also, and this is Kaylee's retrograde theory, it is also a cheaper bicycle for that manufacturer to make, which increases profit margins. Granted, we don't begrudge bike manufacturers from trying to make money. That is the entire idea here. However, if again, if, if we think that this is going to be a bad thing for consumers, then it's something that, that should be pushed back against. Well, that begs the question of why we haven't seen it yet. Uh, because in terms of designing a drivetrain, it's not an engineering feat that hasn't been conquered before. So why haven't we seen the likes of Specialized or Trek come out with their own drivetrain? Captains. 
Yes. All the drivetrain companies have, yes. well, one in particular has a lot of <laughs> patents around yes. their products and it protects them from having these companies come in and just rip off their design. And so it makes sense, but um, it also, you know, holds it back from developing new stuff. But they've also, you know, these companies have put in a lot of work to make these things work really well and really efficiently. So it's going to be hard to come in and do something, get around those patents and create something totally new. I mean, I think it's going to have to be a big jump. It's not going to be like, oh, here's your chain and your 11 speed, you know. It's going to be something drastically, <laughs> drastically different if it does come up. Yeah, I mean, Shimano has, Shimano is the company that you're talking about. Shimano has patents out the wazoo uh, and the other companies that compete against them are continually trying to get around those. SRAM also has their own big pile of patents at this point mm -hmm. uh if you're coming in as another party i mean you know we've seen fsa try to come in we've seen rotor try to come in it is really 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 difficult to design a good drivetrain around those existing patents so i think Kristen's right i think that if we do see a if we do see a a frame manufacturer start to make its own drivetrain it may be in line with something that is somewhat revolutionary i mean we're, we're talking you know going back to things like internal gearing uh belt drives shaft drive things things like that you know we are not engineers sitting around this table we just pay close attention to the industry these things are all they're all used in other vehicles and there is the possibility of of designing them properly for a bicycle the question is would consumers ever want to what would be the would consumers be be okay with that sort of monumental shift and change? I actually think you're going to run into a, a distribution issue, or it's going to if you, if we went down this road, you're going to see it dramatically affect your your local bike shop or, or the shops in your town because yeah, it's relatively easy to build your own bike with everything proprietary, but people are going to have to replace chains, people are going to have to replace cassettes, they're going to have to replace all these parts. Bike shops already now have to carry SRAM and uh, and Shimano. They're not going to want to carry a specialized chain and cassette and you know all these different bike companies, different specialized. We we need to pump companies. the brakes here. Yeah. <laughs> say that company again. What did I just say? Say say that bike company, the manufacturer again. SRAM. No, the other one. Specialized. No, the other one. Shimano. Shimano. <laughs> Shimano. Uh, I'm Canadian. Oh, Leave no. me alone. So Canadian. Oh, you Torontoed that. <laughs> <laughs> Tyranna. <laughs> um, one one other consideration with drivetrains. By the way, is, I love the fact that both of you just stopped listening to anything I said after that. <laughs> yeah, we, both, we like, were over same it. moment. Just looked at me with yeah. this big grin. We just heard Shimano, and Shimano. We just, I was like, "Which which one of us is going to make fun of him for this? <laughs> which one of us? It's going to be Dan. It's going. It was Dan. almost me. It's, you got in first. But <laughs> I'm quick when it comes to making fun of Trevor. Yes, <laughs> but in seriousness, is that? an issue where a bike shop's going to have to carry all these different types of chains, all these different types of cassettes. If you start having specialized, uh... potentially, but, but also, I mean, patents run out. And so I think a lot of those designs could be up for grabs and then you could use a Shimano chain with a, a specialized drivetrain. And we already see some component mixing. I think, I think that there's the Kristen's point is valid that we're going to see something revolutionary if this does happen. But I think the basic tenets of how a drivetrain works probably isn't going to change. I mean, we're, we're, we're still in the realm of chains and cassettes until somebody comes up with something that's lighter, stronger, faster. Uh, and that hasn't happened. We've seen other iterations, but nothing's really usurped the, the, the chain and cassette. So, you know, there is, there is a possibility that patents run out. And so you see borrowed elements of maybe electronic drivetrains. You see maybe some wires. But, you know, there is a way to make 
chains and cassettes that bike shops already have on hand uh, usable. Contrary to that, though, is even if it is a matter of saying, yeah, now you need this specialized chain to work with your specialized drivetrain. Stop using specialized. It's the only example. Trek. <laughs> Just say Trek. We'll overdub Trek. Trek. <laughs> the future. The future. <laughs> uh, even if giant was to make their own drivetrain and you had to stock your own giant chain that's kind of hilarious <laughs> um the 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 cost for a bike shop who who's already carrying giant might even be lower because they actually have to stock less parts from other companies so if you're saying you know if if 50 percent of your floor space is accessories 40 percent is bikes right and you have to get all those those parts for those bikes you're stocking your 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 shop with parts for all these different brands, all these different bikes, all these different drivetrains. But if 70% of your shop is a giant shop, all of a sudden you've got an in with giant to say, all right, give me the bikes and stock me with all the parts I'm going to need and give me a discount. So there is a potential to actually make things cheaper for bike shops. However, that does tend to take away the character of a bike shop, right? So then do you, are you now oh, a giant Oh, rabbit shop? hole, rabbit hole. We're mm-hmm. avoiding this rabbit hole. <laughs> we're going in. That's where I was. I, 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 think we've, I think we've gone around circles on drivetrains enough. Quick poll, those in the room. Are we going to see frame manufacturers making drivetrains, you know, giant, Trek, specialized, whoever it is, are we going to see them making drivetrains sometime in the next decade? Hand in the air. You can't see hands on the radio, unfortunately, but we got, I'm putting my hand down. I was just... Showing you how to put a hand in the air. Put your hands in the air. (laughs) Thank you for the instruction. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we got two of four. Kristen and Dan both think that they're going to make drivetrains. I actually don't. Uh, I think that even though we've seen uh, companies make their own crank sets and things already, Specialized does that. A couple others do that. uh, I don't think we're going to see full drivetrains, at least not anytime in the sort of near, semi-near future. The conversation about equipment comes up all the time, and quite frequently you hear people say, well, that's for pros, but that's not something I need. So when we had Sepp Kuss in the office, who's a pro tour rider, we thought we would ask him what he felt about all this specialization of equipment and what he would like to see with bikes to get the pro perspective. You might be surprised by his answer, so let's hear what he has to say. What, what would you love to see five to ten years down the line as a pro cyclist? Yeah, I think uh, maybe hydraulic rim brakes, I guess, across – I, I guess Magura still – do they still make they, they made those ones for time trail bikes. And then yeah. SRAM, SRAM, they did make a hydraulic rim brake. I don't know. I don't think it was particularly popular. I'm not sure that they're still okay. making it. But. So I think that would maybe deliver the same uh, stopping power and maybe modulation, but mm-hmm. uh, that would maybe resolve the – the issues with compatibility for different disc brakes and um, the rubbing of the mm-hmm. the caliper on the disc, which seems like a problem for disc brakes moving forward from a mechanical standpoint. Um, I think uh, adjustable seat posts too, just like micro adjust. I guess yeah. did FSA make one of those? <laughs> they, for, they did. Nibley or somebody, but that's the mountain biker coming out in you. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I don't know for a guy that's like honestly adjust my saddle like every week um, <laughs> <laughs> you know the tilt of it and everything so i think if, if, it's, if saddles had a lightweight like micro adjust 
just millimeter at a time mm-hmm. that would resolve you know some, i would love to see headache. some yeah i would love to see some research into like you know so you scoop forward on your saddle if you're like on the rivet climbing for example yeah. and then you maybe maybe you sit back in the saddle if you're just cruising along that effectively short like raises and lowers your saddle right i would i would be interested in seeing some research into can you can it can your can a whole ride be made more efficient with some you know small saddle adjustments like yeah. that. maybe i mean from what we heard when fsa was making that that adjustable saddle thing uh even basso was the first one to use it and then actually nibbly used it for a while yeah. um was for that exact reason was to allow for a little bit of adjustment climbing versus descending versus flats mm. i guess basso it wasn't like a dropper post so to speak it was just little minor adjustments okay. so yeah i like that idea be cool yeah <laughs> for a guy that's always fiddling around you know yep. it makes it a little bit more streamlined i guess What's your feeling about, it seems like bikes are becoming more and more specialized now, meaning um, every manufacturer is making parts that only work with their bikes and often with the particular models. How do you guys as a pros and particularly your mechanics feel about that trend? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I agree with that. I think there's a lot of proprietary gear and just small parts that make, uh, especially the mechanics jobs, a little bit tougher if they have to deal with some one-off part that only works with X, Y bike. Yeah, I think from a from a marketing standpoint, it's you know maybe cool to have you know all specialized or whatever uh, parts. But I think it for the for the guy that's working on his bike, you know, in his garage that doesn't want to deal with all that. I think it makes it a kind of an issue. So even at the pro level, do you think the very minor performance enhancements are, are worth the the pain? No, I don't think so. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, well, I, I think, yeah, I think it depends. I mean, for me, for a guy that's not going to spend much time out in the wind, you know, uh, I don't really care much for aero equipment or anything like that. But I guess I'm just going with aerodynamics as an example. I think that's what we're seeing a lot of. But I think there's over the course of like a week long stage race, if there's a bunch of flat stages and a mountain and mountain stage later on, I think you can save a lot of energy through equipment like that. But for me, I don't really ever think about the little things that'll make my bike better. It's more little things that'll make my me physically better as a you know training or racing. Next topic: Kaylee's theory of e-bikes. E-bike activity. E-bike activity. Yeah. Uh, you know, e-bikes are worth talking about. Every single time I go to Europe, they're everywhere. They're they are like rabbits. They are multiplying. Uh, at the Tour de France this year, you know, and, and I've been covering this, the race for a while now. In the la- just in the last two years, we've gone from you know the people that you see riding up the passes to watch the tour being a bunch of old dudes on old road bikes to like children on e-mountain bikes riding up the Isward. I saw multiple children on e-mountain bikes riding up the Israel. youths youths they are everywhere i mean e-bikes are everywhere in europe uh in the united states much less so <laughs> they are very slowly making their way into the u.s market but if europe is anything to go by we are going to be seeing a lot of these things in the next couple of years and this is the sort of technology that will evolve incredibly rapidly it already is evolving incredibly rapidly it's downsizing they're getting more powerful the batteries are getting smaller this is the sort of thing where in 10 years, an e-bike is going to look almost nothing like an e-bike looks today. And that means, I think, Kaylee's theory of e-bikes, we're going to see a lot of internal, looks like a regular road bike, e-bikes in the next decade. 
you know, we've, we've heard about these things being used to cheat. There's been some allegations of cheating in pro racing. There was just an amateur Grand Fondo rider in Italy who got caught with a motor inside his road bike. This is the sort of thing that we're going to, I think, see more and more often as these things continue to downsize. And we get actually truly powerful motors, big batteries that fit inside a regular looking road frame. So Kaylee's Theory V bikes, they're coming. But I, think I think we're going to see a lot more of them on the road side, not just commuters, not not e-mountain bikes. I think we're going to see e-road bikes a lot. And I think we have to make decade. a pretty big split here. We're talking about e-bikes that you go and you purchase as an e-bike, not yes. a race bike that somebody right. goes and puts a motor Modifies. in to try and cheat. Right. This is not for racing purposes, <laughs> although that could be a problem down the road if the bikes do become, the motor becomes small enough that it's easy to hide, then then that becomes its own well, that, problem. That's what I was going to ask about is, I mean, they, they can detect them pretty easily now in the pro races, but what in does theory. that mean? Well, in their current existence, right. not, <laughs> in, not in the way Kaylee's talking about them being. But even even talking about what, going back to what you're talking about, what does it mean for those of us who are going to the local group ride where nobody's detecting these things and yeah. they get to a point where you can't notice them? I, I think it's really important to note that Kaylee's completely wrong uh, because <laughs> okay. there's, there's a difference between mountain bike e-bikes and road bike e-bikes, and that difference is mountain bikers don't like to go uphill. Road bikers build their careers on it, and so the competition on the roadside is up. And if you're plugging a motor in, well, where's the motor going to be most useful? On the ups. Well, what the heck fun is your road biking if you're not going under your own power fast uphill? Whereas with mountain biking, the idea is to get to the top of the hill so you can go down it, which is why I think the the e-bike craze on the mountainside has taken off in Europe as much as it has. On the roadside, while I think it's possible to certainly make that lightweight, fast road bike and have a motor in it, what's the point aside to cheat? aside from cheating? There really is no point in having it. It doesn't... It doesn't add to the ride at all. It, it, in fact, it detracts from it. Dan's wrong. <laughs> well, so here's, here's an example. Here's an example. I ride my bike with my wife all the time. I am a, slightly faster than she is. It would be no, great. No, you not. Come on. Barely. <laughs> it would be great if, you know, if she could ride a bike that just gave her 50 watts. Because then we could ride together and I would be, I would get a really good workout and she would get a really good workout because she's still, you know, you're still pedaling with an e-bike if you only get 50 watts out of it. But we would ride at the same speed. That would be really cool. Why don't you just add weights to your bike and slow the hell down? <laughs> uh, or like a parachute? Yeah, a parachute. Yeah. That'd be good. That's a no, good thanks. look. That's a good look too. <laughs> no, I, I do think that there are, there are, there are reasons for these things to exist. Uh, and I will say that, you know, like I said, I think you have to see the craze with your own eyes. Mm-hmm on the continent to really realize I have, I mean, but you've but, seen it. Yeah. yeah I, I, and it, I, I think it makes sense uh, on the mountainside and commuter side. Uh, I think that's because the motors and the batteries are still big though. I think the motors and batteries are still big. So that's why they're putting them on commuter bikes and they're putting them on mountain bikes. Well, the one, the roadies one, like sleekness. Yeah. And I think as soon as that stuff is small enough to go inside a road bike without you noticing, it's going to go inside a road bike without you noticing. The one time I can see this making sense is if I, I'm a commuter with a really long commute, uh, which I am, in fact. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's about, it, depending on where I start, it's about 18 or 21 miles door to door for me, one way. And so I ride my bike that, and it's a great workout. It's about an hour in the morning, an hour in the afternoon. It's great. But by Friday, I'm exhausted. And I don't want to be on some upright e-bike. I still want to be on my racy, aggressive road bike. But I also... You know, that one hill going out of Boulder, maybe I need a little help there. So that I can see it being helpful for. But again, it's still a commuting style assist. So do I necessarily need that 
in a $10,000 race bike? No, absolutely not. I think you've just proven yourself wrong. I wasn't <laughs> listening to myself, so I don't really know. I, I was about to bring up that example because of, I would say over half of the, uh, the athletes I coach uh, in Toronto commute to work, and they commute to work on their, their road bikes. Um, and I've had this conversation with every one of them where they go, you know, how, how do I deal with this? How does it affect my training? They also complain about the fact that you know, often they work in places where they have to wear a coat and tie and they don't want to get sweaty in the morning, but they like the idea of riding home in the afternoon and getting a good ride. So I think for them, there'd be this huge appeal of let's turn the motor on in the morning, get to work, and then have my ride in the, uh, going home. I'm with Kaylee on this. I think it's going to be huge on the road. I think is it gets smaller and sleeker. We're going to see way more people. But I also think like, Okay, we're all fairly young and fit here, so we're all like, yeah, I want to go ride up big mountains right now. (laughs) Trevor's probably the fittest of us all. (laughs) I'm old and fit. (laughs) There's plenty of people out there who, you know, riding 9, 10 miles an hour is is their normal, is their norm. And going out for an hour ride and you can only get 10 miles in, that limits where you can ride a lot. But you up that to double that so that you can ride 20 miles an hour for that hour, you just opened a whole new world to those people out on the road. Strava users would, their heads would explode. Oh yeah, there's going to be some big, I mean, there's- Strava controversy. There's going to be so many issues with it. Strava's going to have to, I mean, I don't envy Strava right now with this coming um, because it's going to be really hard to figure those things out. But it's they're going to have to figure it out. Well, happen. or they're, or they're just not going to have to figure it out, and it'll just be you yeah. know hopefully self policing, and hopefully people won't be. Well, in my some point, Strava is going to have to require power or heart rate. Yeah. yeah, 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 and have algorithms that say yeah. there's no way you could have gone that speed at that power. Right. My theory about e-bikes is that it's actually going to do cycling some good, you know, in the community side of it. Because Trevor, you were talking about like, well, how do you know people aren't going to show up to your group ride with an e-bike on if they're quiet and small enough? And it's like, well, you get to know the people you ride with and you know, like, wow, Joe over here really, he was pretty slow last week and all of a sudden he's kicking my butt. Maybe and there's something going pedaling. on there. That yeah. You know, like it brings a little bit of that where you have to kind of just know each other and you have to pay attention and it's just not like showing up and being the guy that doesn't talk to anybody on a, on a group ride. Or, other, or otherwise you won't be invited or well and i think that we all have we all have a friend who's you know not quite fast enough to do the fast group ride and we actually would like to have them show up yeah dan <laughs> I, I you know i love riding with dan but dan's real slow and if dan would show up with a, with an e-bike slow guy and we could ride. go real fast I, w- I would appreciate that very much dan if you would just get yourself an e-bike so you can come on bike rides <laughs> again rabbit holes there are there are we can we can continue talking about something like e-bikes Literally all day. Uh, I think that the natural inclination of most cyclists is to hate them immediately. And then once you really look at it and you think about the ways that this does potentially expand use, which is a good thing for all cyclists, and you sort of get over the fact that, yeah, you get over your initial sort of, well, we do this because we want, you know, we want to get there under our own power. Once you kind of get over that, I do think that uh, that you can you can view them in a slightly more favorable light. And like I said, Kaylee's original e-bike theory it feels weird talking about myself in the third person. I think they're going to be everywhere in five to 10 years. I think they're going to be on the road. I think they're going to be in commuters. And I think they're going to be, unfortunately, uh, on mountain bikes. That's a whole nother kettle of fish. Time for one more quick break. We know you, our listeners, like to ride. So support the show and check out Health IQ's life insurance rate specifically for cyclists. You can get a quote at healthiq.com slash fasttalk. All right, let's get back to the show. 
We have a couple more things to talk about in today's show. Next up, what's after carbon fiber? Straight gauge steel. <laughs> back to the original. <laughs> yeah. there, there, there is, I mean, there is something to be said for that, actually. We, we have been moving back toward metal bikes. I mean, just think about riding here in Boulder. I think the preponderance of metal bikes has increased dramatically in the last five or six years. And part of that is we have a couple of really good local builders, guys like Aaron Barcheck on Mosaic. Like, you know, you show up at a group ride here and half the people are on Mosaics. But there is sort of this, this it's not really a, a desire for retro so much as it's just a desire to sort of go back to something that's, that, that's more customized, that's exactly what you're looking for. But regardless, in the racing world, carbon is still king. Uh, there doesn't appear to be anything on the horizon that will end that reign. But at some point, we will have the next iteration of the race bike. What do we think that's going to be? Follow whatever's faster than a bike. So airplanes, uh, aerospace, spaceships, and even race cars. What are they using? Cyclists, uh, cycling designers are not stupid. They they borrow from other industries. You've seen Specialized. They, they uh, coordinate with McLaren. Uh, often, I mean, McLaren, for those of you who don't know, I don't know why you wouldn't know, but they make cars. So whatever's coming down the pipe is probably going to come from the aerospace or maybe even from the automobile side. Where there's a lot more money. Where there's a lot more money for development and a lot more, quite frankly, just more engineers working on that, those problems. I think you're right. I think carbon's here to stay for the, the foreseeable future. I think the way carbon is used might change. We're seeing more and more additives into carbon uh, that change the way the, the frame uh rides you know the ride characteristics things like that makes it could in certain cases make it lighter and stronger which is essentially what everybody's after right lighter and stronger but for the moment what's after carbon probably some other sort of carbon <laughs> i think you're right uh if we're if we're answering our original question which is what are bicycles going to look like in five years i think five years time it's still carbon fiber there's nothing currently on our radar that is going to replace carbon fiber within five years in 20 years uh, that's a whole nother that's a whole nother story i think dan's right there we're gonna we're gonna start seeing more and more additives we keep talking about specialized they do a lot of r&d so it's not too surprising they're using something called dyneema now which is sort of a it's like a plastic basically and this is actually becoming uh, quite common you add plastics into uh into your into your carbon fiber into your carbon resin and it sort of uh, increases the plasticity which makes a carbon fiber less brittle which means you're less likely to crack your frame next time you crash in a criterion we're going to see a lot more of that kind of stuff because there are there are downsides to carbon fiber we all know them uh, every single time you you know every time every time you line up for a crit you have a pretty good chance of breaking your carbon frame in two uh in some big pile up it's a brittle material. It's very, very, very strong and getting stronger, but it's still a brittle material. And I think that that is what manufacturers are really focusing on fixing at this point in time. They have almost everything else figured out. They have the stiffness figured out. They have the lightweight figured out. We're going to see small gains on that front. I think we're going to see a lot more strength for what we already have in terms of stiffness and weight. Well, and if any of the UCI regulations go away, like the weight limit, that kind of thing, I think maybe we'll start seeing some pretty revolutionary takes on carbon and how to make it lighter um right now frame or bikes are limited to being what is it how many kilos 6.8 kilos kilos. so um and there's been talk of them taking that regulation away or lowering it in some way and so by doing that bike companies could then push the envelope with the weight but until that happens there's real no real big push because all the bikes are too light anyways 
Yeah, I don't think the carbon is going to change much, but I do think uh, things like resins could change. Uh, and I th- and I actually well, which is sort of one and the same, a yeah, little bit. The additives. Yeah. Well, right, yeah. they're the additives, but the resin. I think people don't realize how important a resin is to carbon construction and how much actual research goes into what resins work best for certain applications. Like the resins that are in your wheel, for example, are very different from the ones that are used in your frame. And I mean, the resins used in a disc wheel versus a rim brake wheel are also different. And the resins can affect the, the brittleness, it can affect the ride quality. So I think. You know, are we going to see carbon fibers themselves change? No, probably not. But the the things that go into it, the resins, things like that, uh, you know, Look uses a flax additive to the flax fibers to their carbon for compliance, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, Vibration absorption. Vibration. I mean, there are definitely some – I don't know anything about – whether flax is a dubious claim, but there are some dubious claims Mm -hmm. to be made about some of the additives as well. And I think that uh, flax – well, flax kind of – it sends little little – warning bells off in my head because it's a plant (laughs) plants are dumb they don't do anything all right what's after carbon carbon uh you know i I really don't think you need to worry about your carbon fiber bike suddenly being totally old school uh it will well it will be anyway because of our next theory trevor's theory of planned obsolescence how was that for a segue by the way (laughs) Trevor's theory of planned obsolescence. Trevor, uh, we've all been a little bit grumpy about something or other today. Now is your Here chance is to shine. my moment to shine. I've been waiting all, all <laughs> podcast for this. So here's my question or theory or whatever you want to call it. Trevor's theory. Trevor's theory. I mean, we have a weight limit on the bike. UCI has all sorts of rules on what the bike can look like. Basically, with these rules... Nothing dramatically revolutionary is going to happen with the bikes. And you're not going to see all that craziness that we saw in the 90s with the different size wheels and frames that don't even look like frames. Um, There's just not that much they can do, I feel, to really improve on the bikes. And the worst thing, in my opinion, for the bike manufacturers is to have a bike that serves every purpose that will last 20 years that's at the weight limit and basically it's everything you need because then you're not going to buy another bike. So my question is how much of these tinkerings and, and, and new innovations are really not going to make a difference but there to try to convince the, the buyer they need a new bike, their bike is getting outdated. And I've certainly seen, you know, to me, that's why you keep seeing this, well, we had 10 speed for a couple of years, now let's jump up to 11 speed and then we're going to jump up to 12 and jump up to 13 because who's going to be showing, seen out in the group ride with an 11-speed bike when everybody's on a 13-speed bike? When really, do you need those two extra gears? Yes. You're so wrong! <laughs> Here we go. Your wrongness is offensive to me. Uh, Am I canadian Yeah, well, that's, let's not even go into that. I don't want to start a, I don't want to start a, a war here. Um, I think in terms of obsolescence, whether it's planned or not, if, if bike manufacturers are constrained by UCI regulations – we are absolutely going to see new bikes that people are going to want to buy. Uh, and th- that is already apparent because the UCI has uh, stopped enforcing the three-to-one rule. So already we're seeing bikes come out that could potentially be faster than the bike you have now. And if you're a crazy racer who wants to go just slightly faster, you're going to buy that bike. Uh, the 6.8 kilo rule, that's been rumors floating around about that forever going away. Uh, and we may see that. And so, okay, so now can we make a frame that's 
610 grams, 505 grams. You know, there's always that reason for the racer to upgrade. So as the bike changes and as the enforcement rules changes, you're always going to see a bike that can be improved. The UCI's rule about the bike maintaining the, you know, the two triangles, I think that rule is going to stick around. So we're always going to see a bike that resembles a bike. Uh, but I think with, with the way tube shapes work, the three to one rule is going to be a big one with the, the weight limits, uh, and, and now the way that, uh, frames are constructed for strength. If the 6.8 kilo rule goes away, we're going to see a whole new round of super bikes. So that uh, I agree with, but I guess my question to you is how many of these innovations that get talked up and here's where every single bike company in the world is going to hunt me down. Trevor's address will be posted on my personal website. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but then they have to come up to Canada to find me. Um, <laughs> Dangerous Canada. How many of these innovations are just to make the 2018 model look different from the 2017 model? There's always some of that, but I think, you know, and there's always that cynical reaction. I mean, it's to me, it's a Facebook comment argument. It really is. Because, yes, of Ouch. course. <laughs> yeah, that is a burn right yeah. there. Oh, I don't even use Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Take that, Canada. Um, I do. I think it's... I think it's sort of a, a, a reflex argument. We all have it. Uh, yes, absolutely. The goal is to sell bikes, and you have to differentiate. But does that make does that make a, a an advancement BS out of hand? No, of course not. You know, there, there's always the argument that says, "Oh, they're just trying to get more money out of us." Well, you have an option there. Don't buy it, right? So. If if that's the way capitalism works, right? If somebody makes <laughs> something that's that's garbage, they're going to know right away because nobody's going to buy it. I think we also we tend to underestimate sort of the iterative nature of some of these advancements and the fact that they do build on each other. Right. Uh, and and you know what we see is just ah, why did you change axle standard again? And it's just annoying at the time. Actually, there's sort of steps toward something that is significantly better. We've seen that on mountain bikes. The, the developments on mountain bikes has been much more rapid in the last decade than on road bikes. That's for sure. And so we've seen a lot of these things happen on mountain bikes. And at first, at first, a lot of the industry is highly skeptical or a lot. Sorry, I should say a lot of consumers are highly skeptical of these new changes. And then it becomes the norm and everyone realizes that actually, yeah, this is a little bit better. We can make the chain stay shorter. We can improve tire clearance. We can, you know, all these different things that actually do make a performance difference. Maybe not a massive one, maybe not one that is going to make it so that your old bike is, you know, completely unrideable to you but they are they're iterative steps forward to making a better bicycle and that's what we've been doing for 100 years i mean you, you know we we very rarely get big jumps that when you see them you're like okay that i gotta have that immediately like that is just way better than what i have right now what we get are these little iterative steps because that's the way that engineering works most of the time they're small improvements that build on each other and so yeah you can you can make a planned obsolescence argument but i think the better less cynical argument and i'm usually a relatively cynical person but in this particular uh this particular area i do think that it's just engineers saying i think i can make this a little bit better i think i can make that a little bit better. And the unfortunate side effect is that we end up, if you want to stay on top of the latest and greatest, yeah, you do got to buy a bike every couple of years. But who doesn't like buying a bike coat every couple of years? <laughs> I so, like new bikes personally. Yeah. Let, let's step back quickly because I, I was never trying to say that the bike companies are just trying to sell a bike and don't, you know, basically let's screw the customers. Um, as a matter of fact, when I, when I was managing a team, I always told all the guys on the team, you need to be go out and, and promoting our sponsor. 
um, you need to be encouraging this because if people aren't going to the bike shops to buy bikes, there's going to be no pro cycling and you're not going to have a career. So if people don't buy bikes, this world wouldn't exist. And I agree with you. It's nice to get a new bike every once in a while. I've got so many cracks in mine. It would certainly be nice to have, <laughs> have a new frame. But I guess more of what I was saying is it's more saying to the, the listeners or the buyers, do be a bit discerning. Yes, some things are iterative, but you also have to don't instantly go, okay, the newest, greatest thing is necessarily something that I have to have each time. You know, watch where it's going, see where the trends are going. And, and as you said, it, you know, it might go through a couple iterations. You go, that doesn't really make a difference. And all of a sudden, they figure it out. Mm-hmm. Like electronic shifting. I had a friend who had electronic shifting in the 90s. Medic. Medtronic. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't <And> work. I, <laughs> I actually invested time into trying to figure out what the frequency was on it so that I could get a garage door owner on the same, <laughs> opener on the same frequency. And when I was racing him, I would just sit there and go, click, 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 click. <laughs> Epically nerdy. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, you, you have to do these things. But I guess my, my retro-grouch moment is don't think every new thing is instantly going to make you faster. You have to have it be a bit discerning. I think the, that segment of the population, though, that, that sees something new come out and say, I have to have that now, I think that segment is actually relatively small. I think most people will see it and say, that looks really cool. I'm going to wait until I have the money, which might take me a year and a half to, to save up. That's what I, I mean, I was always like that. I mean, you know, when, when double tap came out from SRAM, I was like, Oh, I want to try that. But it was like a year before I even got my hands on it because I couldn't afford it. And quite frankly, I had a bike that worked. So there was really no reason it was cool. I wanted to see it. And I think that's what most cycling consumers are like. There is a segment that's like, Oh, there's a new e-tap out or there's a new Dura Ace. I need it now. And I'm going to go get it. Uh, and those people know what they're investing in. They know what they're spending their money on. So I think it's it does nothing but good things for the industry to have these iterative changes. I mean, it just makes the bike better. So during this podcast, I mentioned a friend who had that early prototype electronic shifting and a friend who had a bike shop. Well, it turns out this is the same friend. And it's somebody who I was lucky enough to have as my first mentor. His name is Glenn Swan. He was a three-time national champion on the bike. In the evening, he runs a very unique bike shop out of his house that I used to love to go to because, quite frankly, I'd buy something and then they'd feed me dinner. During the day, Glenn works at Cornell University where he runs the machine shop for the engineering department. I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong, but Glenn has said he has done everything from design machines that require a forklift to lift them to machines that could carve text into the side of a cell. Uh, But his job is to design machines for the engineers at Cornell, uh, both as prototypes and for research. All this means that Glenn could probably give any engineer at Trek or Specialized a run for their money when it comes to understanding of bike technology and, and what does make a difference and what doesn't make a difference. So let's hear what Glenn has to say. We, we had a conversation about where bike technology is going over the next five years. And we talked about integration and specialization of all these bikes. And, and I had to bring up the comment of it, it drives bike shops nuts. So uh, quickly before you answer that, I am sitting here in Glenn's shop. And this is one of the most unique shops. I wish I'd taken a picture. <laughs> 
you've ever seen. It's it's not the biggest shop, but he has more in stock than the biggest shops I've ever seen, and parts that you wouldn't find anywhere else. If somebody can't get a bike fixed at a regular shop, Glenn will have the pieces to fix it. And I watched him the other day take a, a 30-year-old Bianchi that had a completely fused um, bottom bracket and figure out how to get it out and just went, Glenn, no bike shop in the world would have put that time into it. So you know a lot about bikes. You know a lot about how to fix them. So how do you feel about the, the directions the, all the bikes are going right now? Well, it's kind of cool to have really sleek bikes and all the modern stuff. But as a mechanic, modern bikes are a horror show. I'd love to talk to some of the pro team mechanics who have to regularly change cables on bikes that have all the cables going through the frame. I know that in the triathlon world, many of the athletes simply hand their bike to somebody when the race is over and the bike is put on a truck and driven to wherever the next event is because you can't take the bike apart to put it in a travel case. The cables and other things on the bike simply will not allow it to be taken apart and fit into a, a compact space. I, for one, find that the aerodynamic advantage of putting cables in it inside the tubes is it's bogus. The amount of wind resistance that's created by cables running alongside the frame, particularly when they're close to where this totally non-aerodynamic moving body with legs and arms is, it's more psychological than truly advantageous. Uh, I know that in the days when I was traveling to World Masters Games, I had the cable housings taped to the outside of my top tube so that I could take things apart for traveling easily. Um, I loved it when we had the old Mavic Mektronic and there were no wires so I could just take my handlebars off altogether. Uh, I could use the same Cervelo frame to uh, race on the track and on the road and just have a different set of handlebars. But I just have to say that the modern bikes with so much internal stuff and so much focus on aerodynamics with these brakes that are tucked away inside the frame or under the bottom bracket that are almost impossible to to work on without going into contortions it just isn't worth the effort from the mechanics point of view i know a rider needs to feel as though his bike is as fast and as techno and as advantageous as it can possibly be so that he will feel as though it's worth giving his complete effort, that he's not leaving anything on the table. But I can race against these guys on my old bike with cables out in the open space, and I know I'm certainly not feeling at a disadvantage. I like large diameter tubes. I like large diameter bottom brackets. You know, you'll never go back to the old heavyweight, small diameter bottom bracket axles. Uh, I think the tapered steerer tubes are the one advantage, the one truly advantageous design change in bikes. The greater front end rigidity and control is quite noticeable. The weight savings in the bottom bracket area, okay, I, I recognize those as well, though that's not weight that's critical weight. Those people who really know speed and performance know that the only place that it truly matters to save weight 
is in your wheels, your rims and tires. So I'm happy to give up a little bit of modern tech and maybe a little bit of weight for greater simplicity so that working on my bike is not such a pain in the neck. So you mentioned the tapered... Um, tapered steer tubes. Uh, is there any other recent design changes, inventions that you go, that's a great idea? In road biking, I can't really say. Mountain biking, okay, I'll acknowledge that the through-axle concept has some advantages, and certainly for mountain biking, disc brakes have advantages. I'm not yet completely sold on disc brakes on road bikes. I can't say that I've ever experienced something in, in road biking where I felt as though I didn't have enough brakes. So I'll leave it open on disc brakes. I have one, one road bike, my gravel bike, that has disc brakes, and I since I've got arthritis in my hands, it requires a little bit less hand strength to operate the brakes. And my ride to work in the morning, I can hit 52 miles an hour on the hill coming down from my house. And yeah, I, I can think for a second or two that this is a little bit easier than if I was on my, my rim brakes. Okay. Anything else you want to add? Well, I was always one who felt as though I didn't need the lightest, the most expensive, the most exotic bike to be able to perform well. I was always faster around the last turn of a Criterium on a bike that didn't cost quite so much because I didn't feel as though I could race on anything that I couldn't walk away from if there was a crash. And uh, consequently, I rode good bikes. I rode very good wheels. But I didn't ride stuff that was more expensive than I could comfortably walk away from. Well, I remember asking you if I had $4,500 to spend on a bike, what would you recommend I buy? And you said three $1,500 bikes. <laughs> <laughs> or spend most of your money on your wheels and then just get a frame that fits. If I were to have any other comments, I'd be looking at things like in the efforts to save ultimate weight some manufacturers are doing carbon fiber dropouts, trying to get rid of virtually every bit of metal in a frame. And while I can see gram savings on that, I like bikes, I like wheels, I like parts that will forgive you for some of the weird things that happen in the world, whether it's dogs running out. Don had an incident a few weeks ago where something happened and it ripped his rear derailleur off, essentially ripped it around in his wheel and his carbon fiber dropouts weren't quite so able to absorb the, uh, the ripping off of the derailleur and the derailleur hanger. Uh, so his very expensive frame was ruined. Whereas had he had a little more strength a metal dropout that the derailleur hanger was screwed into, it might have survived. It might have saved him a thousand dollars or more. So yeah, if you're racing at the highest levels of the sport, especially if it's a sponsor who's buying your bike rather than you having to buy your bike the way most of us masters racers do, um, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd rather have a little higher margin of 
strength, a little more forgiveness for the shit that happens. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> well, I think it's about time for us to wrap it up. So we're gonna we're gonna close today's episode with uh, well, just we like to give you guys some take homes, whether we're talking about physiology or bike tech or whatever. So take homes for today. Question is, what should you do? Looking looking at what what bikes are going to look like in five years, what should the average consumer the do? Looking toward the, the future. future. <laughs> uh, who else to start? Maybe maybe one little tip each from each of us. Live in the now, man. <laughs> no, I mean, we can think about all these cool things that are going to happen in the future in five years. And as Dan pointed out earlier, a lot of these big changes happen at the top end, you know, those just the top, top bikes. And so for most of us who aren't going to spend $12,000 on a bike, they're probably not going to be all that different going in five years. So I'd say just buy the bikes that you're interested in now that suits your, you know, your ability and what you want to ride right now. And be happy with that. Don't worry, be happy. Dan? Uh, I would say consider reality. Five years from now, who are you going to be? What are you going to be doing? What's your fitness level? Realistically, what kind of racing are you going to be doing? Uh, and then forget about it because five years is five years away. And it's probably two bikes away for you, you know, if you're, if you're a racer, maybe one bike away. Uh, and I think Kristen's got a point. Take advantage of what's out now. Uh, unless you want to make the investment of a bike that you're going to own forever, in which case you're going to buy a custom steel or you know titanium bike that you're going to ride forever. So quite frankly, I think you should buy a, uh, a, a steel frame with decouplers, stick it in a case like Kaylee does, and go travel Europe. Mine's tie. Whatever. <laughs> Fancy pants. Trevor, do you have any recommendations? I feel I have to say something very retro-grouchy. So... I think I'm going to go with the consider the practical standpoint as well, meaning you might buy this really cool looking bike with all this new tech, but then you have to live with it. So if you buy that giant bike and there's no shop anywhere near you that has all these specialized giant parts, what are you going to do when your bike starts breaking down? If you do your own repair, make sure that you have a bike that you know how to fix and you can work with. And I think of myself the first time I tried to do my own internal cable housing for four hours <laughs> and nearly, yeah, well, I uh, won't share. Um, <laughs> just consider all those standpoints. The bike brand new and first couple rides might be amazing, but you do have to live with it for a few years and make sure you have all the resources around you to be able to live with it. And my recommendation mm -hmm. as you're looking ahead and thinking about what you might buy or when you might buy it. Get an e-bike. <laughs> yeah, just just get a motor. Call it a day. Never no, listen uh, to Kaylee ever. <laughs> no, I actually my, my my real recommendation is pay attention to product cycles. Uh if you particularly in the drivetrain world, these things are very predictable. When Shimano will have its next Durace and then when that technology will end up at Altegra and when it will end up at 105. These things are all very predictable. They're essentially on a on a 2 to 3 year cycle. If you count back to when something was last released, you can basically figure out when the next one's going to be released. I can't tell you how many people uh, will send me angry notes that right after we, you know, we often go to the, the launches of some of this new stuff, say say a, a new Durace, and, I, and then I'll get emails from people saying, oh, I just bought a bike with the old Durace. Well, if you didn't know the new Durace is coming, that's because you just weren't paying very close attention. 
these things are pretty easy to predict. And if you're really worried about always having the latest and greatest, then just make sure you're at the uh, you're, you're at the front end of the product cycle. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. And while you're there, check out our sister podcast, The Val News Podcast, which covers news about the week in cycling. You can hear me and Fred and Spencer share our thoughts on that podcast. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash Magazine and on Twitter at twitter.com slash News. Fast Talk is co-produced by News and Connor Coaching. For Trevor and Kristen and Dan, I am Kaylee Fritz. Thanks for listening. And quick disclaimer to all you bike companies out there, Dan made me say all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and also, the 